For over a century, 19th century criminal history has been dominated by a single name. With his murders so violent, his acts so senseless, his victims so vulnerable and his legacy so profound, Jack the Ripper is as synonymous with Victorian London as the Queen herself. But whilst Jack was busy ripping, there was another series of murders being carried out that were equally as gruesome, executed by a killer equally as mysterious and whose story shared all the same traits of the Ripper. Though despite it all, it's a story that has forever remained in the shadow of Jack, whose reign of terror consumed everything in its path, relegating all other mysteries to the back pages for well over a hundred years. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Dark Histories Season 7, Episode 22. It's good to be back on the microphone. I hope this episode finds you well. Before we start, I want to give a quick shout out because it's getting to be that time again for me to open the gates for the the annual Christmas campfire, which is my favourite episode of the year. I I love the communal aspect of it, you know, making an episode with you. uh, It's just good, great fun. So if you want to be involved, definitely uh, start sending your stories in from now if you can. Uh, the email is contact at darkhistories.com. If you did want to put something in the subject to let me know that it's the, for the Christmas campfire, that does make things a little bit easier, but it's whatever. You know, I, I say I read all my emails anyway. So um, yes, do uh, send your submissions in for the Christmas campfire. If you're not sure what I'm talking about, uh, you're a new listener, you've never heard of the Christmas campfire. It's kind of an annual thing we do. Um, it's basically just, uh, you know, a Christmas Eve-ish time, I release a kind of episode that's... Because uh, I, I take a break over December um, from making the podcast. And so, yeah, I release an episode that's basically listeners' stories of their kind of spooky encounters throughout their life or their, you know, un, unexplained, unusual events that might have happened to them. So if you've got anything like that and you want to contribute, uh, say maybe go back and check out the old Christmas Campfire episodes. They're all great. Uh, last year's was absolutely immense the amount of uh, submissions I got but yeah uh, if you if you if you do want to get involved that'd be great so I, I love personally the, the, the communal aspect of it and just feeling like I'm kind of working together with the listeners to create this kind of not just nice kind of end of year celebration spooky stories kind of thing so yeah if you want to be involved in that uh, I appreciate it you know it can be quite a personal thing um, so you know maybe it's not everyone's cup of tea but if, if you do want to get involved Definitely uh, start sending your stories in to me now. There's not really a lot more to say other than let's get started. Uh, this week's episode is kind of an interesting one. I've had this episode or this this uh, subject uh, on the bench at Dark Histories probably since episode one. So uh, it's it's been a long time coming, this episode. But it's the Thames Torso Mysteries, London in the Shadow of the Ripper. London, in 1888, was dominated by a single story. As summer gave way to autumn, Jack the Ripper and his reign of terror kept the inhabitants of the economic capital of the world gripped with the fear of a murderer who stalked in the shadows, struck with vicious savagery and disappeared without a trace, consuming the minds of every Londoner from the East End mudlarks to the title old ladies of Belgravia. London was a city that had changed almost beyond recognition from the beginning of the 19th century. The streets clattering with the hooves of horses pulling carts full of goods and omnibuses full of sightseers. The population had rocketed 
and people took up residence from all over Europe and the wider world. Housing developments filled in the empty spaces left by already towering developments and suburbs sprawled out into the surrounding counties. The great glass domes of Kew Gardens invited day-trippers to walk amongst exotic foliage while Trafalgar Square was redeveloped to furnish the great stone columns of the National Gallery. At the centre of it all, the Thames flowed through the city, swallowing all the filth and detritus that the city could throw at it, carrying a stench out to sea that stung the noses of the men working on the riverbanks that hosted an economy unto itself. Amongst all of the filth and grime, the architecture and machinery, the five murder bodies slashed by the Ripper lay in the streets of East London, highlighting all of the social unrest that haunted the entire city. Change had been hard and fast, and it had opened up old-class divides that were laid bare as uneasy tensions bubbled up under the surface, stoking fears of not only the elusive, almost supernatural murder, but of the city itself. None of this was helped by the fact that the late 1880s was a difficult time for the police in London. Ill-equipped to ponder the existence of a murderer with abstract motives and a lack of obvious clues, they appeared to flounder embarrassingly, despite swelling their ranks with extra officers in vain efforts to catch the killer. Despite all its industrial modernity, the police were viewed as sliding backwards. It was a popular pastime for the press and the public to gossip and write column after column about how inept the city's police were. It was a situation that was not at all helped by the invention of the detective story and the unveiling of the otherworldly genius himself, Sherlock Holmes in 1887, whose eccentric methods made something of a mockery of the real-life detectives who, without the aid of an author shaping their stories, were all too frequently one step behind their man. And it was this same press that wrote of the fear of the Ripper, stoking the story itself, keen to make a healthy profit from his actions. By 1888, the penny press was in full swing and stories of crime and murder were prime copy. A good murder could sell papers for weeks. As the Ripper's victims fell one by one, the story consumed all others and the pages found themselves full of gory details, speculation and the writings of alarmed locals, terrified of their own shadows. Despite around 122 murders being recorded in 1888, It was the five murders in Whitechapel that dominated the headlines, pushing other stories to single columns. If they were lucky enough to have been suspected as being linked to the Ripper, they might have gained a few extra inches of fame. But once they were written off by the police, they were just as quickly discarded by the journalists who were keen to get back to their real breadwinner. The death of Annie-Marie French was one 1888 mystery that saw scant few columns in the capital's papers. A young customer of chemist and part-time dentist William Barber, Annie had had terrible trouble with her teeth, which had given a good deal of credence to the rumours circulating that Barber had been given her regular treatment of a different kind. One day, in late July, Barber called Annie to his backroom dentist's office, which is where she was found later that day, slowly dying from morphine poisoning, with no sign of the rogue dentist anywhere. When Barber was tracked down, he told the police that he planned to treat Abby's toothache, Something he did regularly, but just as he was about to administer his mixture of chemicals to her gums, a customer had entered the shop and pulled him away from the task at hand. When he returned to the back room shortly after, he had found Annie sitting on the chair in a state of discomfort, having drunk the whole poisonous solution. Panicked, he decided it best to run away from the scene. His case saw trial, where it was debated whether or not the two had been in any sort of illicit relationship or not, 
with the insinuation that William Barber had murdered Annie after she had tried to end the affair. Eventually, the case was thrown out and Barber walked away free after the judge summarised the case as more mysterious than ever. Lucy Clark had ended a long career in service to wealthy families and as she was about to turn 50, had opened an upmarket dressmaker in West London, catering to the sorts that she had spent her life clearing up after. Lucy had been missing for a week when estate agent William Betts let himself into her house in order to show a pair of prospective clients the unoccupied floors above her shop, only to find Lucy lying at the bottom of the stairs in a pool of blood, her head badly beaten and her throat cut from side to side, right down to the bone. Suspicion fell upon a pair of Lucy's nephews, Henry and Walter Chadwick, whom she had recently had a falling out with, but after no evidence materialised, including the murder weapons, and no one was able to positively identify the brothers in order to pin them to any witness reports, the case fell into cold territory and eventually lay forgotten under a pile of paperwork on a policeman's desk. Another one of the lesser reported crimes throughout 1888 were the unfortunate victims of bodged operations carried out by some of the less scrupulous doctors who were known primarily by word of mouth within their communities. Elizabeth Gorman was a young widow who was found dead in her home in February after suffering from internal injuries following a botched surgery, likely in the form of a backstreet abortion. A similar fate fell upon Eliza Schumacher, whose dodgy doctor had not only managed to kill her in the process of carrying out the abortion, but had also managed to completely miss the fact that she hadn't actually been pregnant at all. On average, there were around 80 recorded murders per year that took place in London throughout the late 1880s, and these were just a few from 1888 which saw little to no light in the pages of a press that would ordinarily have pounced on each crime with a gruesome enthusiasm. With the appearance of Jack the Ripper in the late summer and autumn, 1888 was no ordinary year, and as such, dozens of such stories flew under the radar, and with the enduring fascination of the Ripper, have continued to do so right up until today, despite many being just as frightening in their details and intriguing in their mysteries. One of the biggest of these stories actually began a year earlier, in the summer of 1887, when a parcel was discovered floating in the Thames River. A constant dumping ground for the citizens of the capital, it was not so unusual to find people's discarded waste floating down the Thames, some of which may still have held some value for some of the lesser well-off who fished in the muddy banks or worked around the various docks. At the same time, neither was it particularly unusual to find the remains of dead bodies. For the unsuspecting, a floating sack bobbing down the river represented a true trick or treat, with the result potentially discovered in true grisly fashion only after the gamble was taken to open it up and look inside. Fifteen months before the murder of Marianne Nichols and the introduction of Jack the Ripper onto the London stage, the city's papers were mainly concerning themselves with parliamentary news, with the occasional tidbit of scandal, violent crime and single murder cases, with which to titillate the reading public. By 1879, the Evening Standard was read by almost a quarter of the London population, gaining much of its readership through its extensive coverage of foreign wars as well as the local news. On Wednesday, May the 11th, it carried stories as eclectic as the movement of troops throughout the country for the upcoming Royal Jubilee to a story of two landlords who had been arrested for diluting the beer they were selling in their pubs. Lighterman, Edward Hughes, had been at work near Raynham in the far east of London since early that morning, punting his barge up and down the river, moving goods into the Victoria docks. When at around 11.30am, 
he saw a parcel floating in the water about 30 feet from the riverbank. Making his way over to a jetty, he hooked up what appeared to be a coarse canvas sack tied up with a cord. Unwrapping it, he peered inside to see what bounty he might have scooped up, only to find the corpse of a woman brutally hacked up. Finding a corpse in the Thames was probably pretty shocking for most, but for a lighterman, it wasn't entirely unusual. The Thames had been used as a city dumping ground for hundreds of years, and so the occasional body washing up in the muddy banks as the tides ebbed and flowed was, sadly, par for the course. Calling over one of his colleagues, he sent for the police and local constable. He sent for the police and local constable stock from the Essex police showed up shortly after. The pair examined the gruesome discovery, finding that far from whole, the bag had contained only the torso of what appeared to have been a woman, though her arms, legs, head and breasts had long since been cut away. Constable Stock took control of the remains and stored them in the ferry building by the dock, whilst a search was launched by Superintendent Dobston along the shallows and in the mud of the bank in the hope of finding some of the missing parts. The body immediately posed difficulties for the officials, since Raynham had no mortuary and the body, having been found in its constabulary, was officially the Raynham Police's responsibility. A suitable storage place had to be found for a post-mortem to be carried out. Eventually, a shed next to the Phoenix Hotel, where the inquest was due to be held, was settled upon and the following day, the barking police surgeon, Dr Edward Galloway, carried out his inspection by dim candlelight. With the body fully unwrapped, Dr Galloway found that whoever had dismembered it had done so with great skill and precision, the flesh having been cut by a fine instrument and all limbs disarticulated from their sockets. Aside from the dismemberment, there were no other signs of violence upon the body and the cause of death was not entirely clear. He did manage to conclude, however, that the woman would have been between 25 and 35 years old, around 5 foot 3 or 5 foot 4, and had been dead for around two weeks. The inquest commenced three days later on Saturday the 14th of May in the hotel next door. First to give evidence was Hughes the Lighterman, who told the room of how he came across the body, followed by the medical evidence from Dr Galloway. Naturally, the questions quickly turned towards the dissecting rooms of the trainee surgeons, which Dr Galloway was quick to shoot down, reassuring the jury that all cadavers used in surgical lectures or by practising surgeons were heavily documented to ensure legitimacy in both their origin and their disposal. Despite this, he was convinced that whoever had done the dismembering had been someone with a thorough knowledge of surgery, citing several of the more difficult cuts that had been made. Not only has the cutting up been performed in an exceedingly skilful manner, but the operation had been carried out on that part of the spine offering the least resistance to separating, and that would only be done by a person having a very intimate knowledge of anatomy. The dismemberment had been done, he was quite sure, in order to aid in the disposal, lessening the bulk and causing difficulty with the identification. Unfortunately for the coroner and the jury, the murderer had been quite successful on that front and with no other clues as to who the body was or how it had died, the inquest was adjourned until June the 3rd, in order to give the police some time to come back with something more solid for the jury to consider. The rest of that weekend was given to searching up and down the banks of the Thames, from Raynham right through Essex to the mouth of the river at the far end of the Essex coast, hoping that the tide may washed up more of the remains, with all the creeks and bays meticulously combed, though it was all to no avail. Meanwhile, back on shore, the police rechecked the dissection register as well as the missing persons register at Scotland Yard, but no matches were found 
and the identification of the body remained a mystery. At one point, a man from North London reported his wife missing, whilst another woman, a Mrs Cross, reported that her daughter was missing, who, at first glance, appeared to match the vague description of the torso made by Dr Galloway, though she was considerably taller. Mrs Cross told the police that her daughter had been of weak intellect and had frequently gone missing for days at a time after wandering down by the river. The police had tried to uncover the whereabouts of both the reported women, however in both cases neither led to anything concrete. Eventually, after three weeks of dead ends, the inquest was resumed to a muted crowd. The searches for more parts having all come to nothing and slowly having petered out long before the day of the proceedings. Dr Galloway took to the stand once more but with no more body parts found, he had little to offer the room, aside from the conclusion that the body must have been dissected very shortly after death, though he was still entirely clueless as to the actual cause of death itself. At the end of the day, the coroner resigned himself to the fact that though everything had been done to discover more evidence about the mystery torso, no light had been shed on the matter, and that no good would likely come of any further adjournment, leaving the jury to return the rather deflating open verdict of simply found dead though if any further body parts were found at any point, an extended inquest would at least be possible. That Sunday, the 5th of July, the mystery torso, aptly named the Rain and Mystery by the press, had already slipped out of most Londoners' memories. Pierman, Mr J. Morris, had been working on the river by the Temple Pier, halfway between the Blackfriars Bridge and the Waterloo Bridge, right in the centre of London, when a report came in that a large parcel had been spotted floating in the water. Stepping out onto the pier, Morris fished the package out and discovered it to be another coarse sack tied with cord. As he landed it with a thud onto the wooden boards, the cord slipped aside, uncovering a lump of pale flesh. Morris immediately called for a policeman who unwrapped the grim package and found it to be a single human thigh. The leg was promptly handed over to the assistant police surgeon, Dr Hamilton, who found that the top of the leg had been cleanly cut from the pelvis leading most to immediately consider it as one of the lost pieces of the Raynham torso. Hours later, following an extensive search, a second sack was found further southwest down the river by Battersea Park, washed up on the south bank, which once opened appeared to contain more of the mystery body, with the police conjecturing that both sections had been tossed off one of the nearby bridges half a mile away and left to float downstream upon the tidal currents. Once again, the remains were handed over to Dr Hamilton, who, along with Dr Galloway, confirmed that all three body parts were from the same body, and curiously, had not likely been in the river very long, as no waterlogging had taken place. The following Saturday, in the absence of a full inquest, the police doctors came together in order to discuss the finds along with the coroner, city police, and members of Scotland Yard present. By now, the thigh had already been buried in a pauper grave in Ilford Cemetery, with the torso having been long since buried all the way downriver in Raynham. Whatever passed between the officials that afternoon was never reported or recorded, but shortly after, the Home Secretary became involved, ordering an exhumation of both body parts, with all parts then preserved for future examination. However it came about, it turned out to be incredibly fortuitous, as just two days later, close by to the package found at Temple Pier, a third parcel turned up in the river, and then one week later, a labourer named William Cope discovered a fourth package floating in the water of Regent's Canal between two barges north of the Thames just behind King's Cross Railway Station. This time, the sack contained two legs, which appeared to have been sitting in the water for some time. The gory job of assembling all of the pieces fell to Dr Galloway, 
who pieced it all together and confirmed that all parts were indeed from the same person, leaving the police with an almost complete body, minus the upper part of the chest and, of course, the all-important head. This was further backed up by the fact that all parts had been wrapped in the same coarse sack and the cord that had wrapped them shut was also the same across every package. With so much new evidence, a fresh post-mortem was carried out by Dr Galloway along with Dr Thomas Bond, the police surgeon for A Division in Whitehall, with the results given at a new inquest that took place in Camden Town on the 13th of August. Despite so much more of the remains being found, the testimonies were relatively underwhelming all round, with Dr Bond only really able to add to the body of evidence that he believed the woman to have had dark hair and to have been slightly shorter than what Dr Galloway had originally suggested. He concluded that the dissection, and importantly, the removal of the head, had undoubtedly been done in order to deliberately obfuscate identification, and curiously, he was sure to add that, whilst he believed the cuts to have been done by someone with knowledge of anatomy, he added that he also believed they did not necessarily have any special surgical skill. With the police not able to add any new clues to the mystery, the inquest was finally closed without change to the original open verdict of found dead. With no clues as to who the victim had been, why she had been killed, or by whom, and with no likelihood of ever discovering any of these answers, the case quickly turned cold. With no updates to write about, it fell off the pages of print and out of the memories of the public. The Raynham torso was doomed to forever being a mystery. At least, until a year later, whilst London was tight in the grip of the Ripper, and a new parcel was dragged out of the Thames. In the year following the discovery of the Raynham torso and the preceding body parts, the murder had been forgotten as quickly as any other murder in London, and there were a fair few of them to forget about. Twelve other people had been killed in the capital city that year, and the trend was looking bleak for 1888. Then, as August reached its end and the summer came to a close, the murder of Mary Ann Nichols on the streets of Whitechapel whilst out prostituting herself in order to raise the money for a bed in the Doss Houses of Flower and Dean Street had kick-started the Ripper's career. Just over a week later, in the early hours of the 8th of September, Annie Chapman became the infamous killer's second victim and as the details of the brutality of the attack hit the press and links were made between the two murders, the panic in the East End of London grew palpable. The victims had been of the lowest classes and the killer had worked quickly, disappearing into the shadows from which he'd emerged. With the concept of serial killers still fresh in the criminal lexicon, the fears of such a violent attacker were easily stoked and the Ripper was promptly painted as a near-supernatural, ghoul-like creature drunk with blood. The police had flooded the streets, with a hundred policemen drafted into Whitechapel from other areas of London and the locals to Whitechapel were proposing curfews. And then, just after 12.30 in the afternoon of 11 September, just three days after the discovery of Annie Chapman's body, a labourer named Frederick Moore was passing by Deal Wharf just 200 yards from Battersea Park, where portions of the rain and body had been discovered a year before, when he spotted a pale object, partially covered by the river mud and exposed by the low tide. Collecting a ladder from the timber yard that he worked at directly opposite, he climbed down onto the riverbank and approached the curious item. As he drew closer, however, it became obvious that it wasn't an item at all, rather the object was an arm wedged by a few strips of discarded timber protruding from the shallows, bloated by the water. Since he'd made his way down onto the river mud, 
He collected up the grim find and took it back up the ladder before looking for a policeman to report the find. Constable William James was the first officer on the scene, though there was little work for him to do other than escort the arm to the local mortuary, where it could be examined by the surgeon Dr Neville. Just like the remains discovered a year earlier, Neville found that the arm had been cut off at the shoulder and carefully disarticulated from its socket, with the cuts being made by a precise and sharp tool, though he could not be sure if it was done with any special skill in anatomy. Concluding that the arm had come from a young woman of around 25 years of age who had been well-nourished and tall, the arm, he said, had been placed into the water around two or three days prior to its discovery. He then passed his report on to Inspector Adams, who had taken charge of the case. At first, the possibility that it had been dumped by someone from a medical school or a practical joker who had been looking to stoke the fear coming from the East End was floated in the press. But these rumours were quickly squashed and the police confirmed that serious inquiries were being made with the arm being treated as part of a serious crime. In the days following, the police organised extensive searches of the riverbanks around the Battersea Park area, but to no avail. And likewise, when a woman, Mrs Potter, approached the police to report her missing daughter, she was introduced to Dr Neville, but was unable to make any identification from the sole arm. Though with her daughter being just 17 years of age, the details didn't really seem to match with the doctor's observations anyway. Five days after the find, the arm was re-examined by Dr Thomas Bond, who, alongside Dr Charles Hebert, had been one of the surgeons who had examined the rain and remains. Bond re-examined the arm, revising down the woman's age to just 20 years old. The two doctors were also able to add that the victim had been of dark complexion and that the arm had been removed using seven separate cuts, with a ligature being used to prevent the blood draining and the removal being carried out by someone with some knowledge of anatomy. They also added to their report that the limb had lacked muscle definition and that the fingernails were in good condition. Though with just a single arm, they were unable to furnish the police with any more details. Two and a half weeks passed before any more news could surface related to the mystery arm. Within that time, the police had organised and called off an unsuccessful search for more body parts and the country's attention had turned to focus on Whitechapel after the bodies of Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes had been discovered murdered in one evening, less than an hour apart. Shortly after, the world had been introduced to the name of the man stirring up the East End terror via a letter sent to the press, headed up, Dear Boss, and signed, Jack the Ripper. The very next day, following the Ripper's double murder, as the entirety of London was reeling from the horrific details being printed on what was looking to be an unprecedented assault on the inhabitants of East London, Carpenter, Frederick Winborn, who was working on the construction of the new Scotland Yard building in Whitehall Place on the Victoria Embankment overlooking Westminster Bridge, was showing up to work at 6am. The low winter sunrise was beginning to light the site in a dusty glow. Like many workmen of the day, Winborn stored his tools on site, often secluded in hard-to-reach areas. Climbing down into the construction footings, he lifted some boards that had been tacked down in order to expose his tools. Next to the box, he noticed a package wrapped up in brown paper and tied with string, partially obscured by dirt leaning up against the far wall. Leaving it well alone, he took his tools and climbed up out of the pit and headed up to ground level to get on with work. The next day, during his dinner hour, he mentioned this package to his foreman, William Brown, who ordered him back down to drag it out so they could take a look at it, suspicious that it may have been a thieves' plunder of some kind. It wasn't the easiest job dragging it back out of the lower levels, 
practically pitch black and with construction site equipment everywhere, he hauled up the package, two and a half feet long by two feet wide, and slowly began opening it up. As he pulled the paper aside, small white things fell from it and took him a moment to realise that they were all alive, wriggling around as they scattered onto the floor. At the same time he was realising that these were maggots, he also realised the stench coming from inside the bag. Quickly wrapping it back up, the workman thought, perhaps rather hopefully, that it was a bundle of rotten bacon. But all the same, they went to the police station to report the find that afternoon. Finding Detective Constable Hawkins on duty, the officer returned to the worksite with the two men to have a look at the package for himself, where upon opening it up, he discovered that it was not bacon at all. Rather, it was the rotting torso of a dead woman wrapped in what appeared to be the material of a dress. Nearby on the ground, he noticed that there was a few more shreds of the same material. Leaving the parcel in the hands of another constable, Hawkins alerted Dr. Thomas Bond, who showed up on the site that afternoon, who, upon his initial inspection, concluded that the body, decomposing and surrounded by maggots, was likely to have been dumped several days earlier, and he couldn't be entirely sure. The torso was loaded onto a hand wagon and transported from the work site to the Millbank mortuary, where Bond looked over the body with more scrutiny. Here, he noted that the lower part of the bow and the pelvis was completely missing, along with the head, arms and legs. He was still unable to give a solid date for the likely death of the woman, given that most forensics that would have allowed for such a dating process, the life cycle of blowfly maggots being key, was still several decades away. One of the earliest aspects of the gruesome find that the police had to tackle was how the murderer had managed to gain access and then navigated his way through the treacherous, half-built foundations of the site in order to dump the body in the first place. The site was described by one foreman as a vast labyrinth of brick passages, archways and vaulted chambers. With only two modes of access, either by climbing over the high hoardings that surrounded the building site from the bank of the river or via a small alleyway directly opposite the home office building. The hoardings were deemed virtually impossible to climb with the weight of the body in tow. And then on top of all of this, why had the murderer chosen to wind his way through the difficult terrain in order to dump the body where it was likely to have been found by a workman, rather than just chuck it in the river or into the well that supplied the water to the site? Police questioned the workman who had been working in the area, and all were convinced that the body had not been there on the afternoon of Friday the 28th of September, when they had been taking measurements all throughout the archways where the package was found. Several other workmen confirmed that they had not seen it when they had boarded up the arches for the weekend on the following Saturday evening. This meant that the body could only have been dumped between the Saturday night and Monday morning, when it was first discovered. The police instigated a full search of the worksite, including draining of the well, and alerted the workmen to keep an eye out for any sites that may have looked like they had been recently disturbed or turned over. But nothing was found, with the search being almost certainly plagued by the state of the construction site, which was, as expected of a work in sight, in a fairly advanced level of disarray. Chief Superintendent Joseph Henry Dunlap conducted a thorough sweep of the surrounding areas, organising door-to-door questioning and even enlisting the aid of a pack of bloodhounds, which they took onto the construction site and let loose, hoping they might lead, lead the police to the missing pieces of the body. But all of this was to no avail. Meanwhile, back in the mortuary, Dr Thomas Bond and Dr Hebert were once more summoned to conduct the post-mortem of the torso, where they discovered that an arm found several weeks prior and brushed over by the officials fitted perfectly to the torso, and just as before, it had been skillfully disarticulated from the body with a series of fine cuts. Further, they were able to conclude that the woman had likely been dead for at least two months, 
had probably never had a baby and had perhaps suffered pleurisy at some point in her life. Aside from these somewhat vague observations, however, no other identifying marks could be found. The inquest was carried out on Monday the 8th of October in front of Coroner John Troutbeck and saw testimonies from several of the workmen, including Frederick Wimborne, who walked the room through the discovery of the torso, impressing to the jury that the place in which the body was found would have been incredibly difficult to reach for anyone unacquainted with the site. This was a fact pointed out again by Detective Hawkins who followed. The medical evidence came next, with Dr Thomas Bond concluding his report that the head, arms and legs had been sawn from the body using a fine saw, with the arms being removed with some skill. The woman had been fair-skinned, with dark hair, older than 25 years of age and about 5 foot 8 tall. But otherwise, no other identifying factors could be found and no cause of death could be ascertained. Dr Hebert backed up Bond, though he also reiterated that whilst the dissection had taken skill, it was not something one would have seen from a dissecting room. Just as with the Raynham torso, with so little evidence to go by, the inquest was adjourned for a further two weeks, in the hope that police may reclaim more parts of the body, or discover an identity. Unfortunately for the police, the whole affair had been conflated with the Ripper case in many papers, and as such, the Whitehall torso saw a new element of scrutiny, leading to a pile of false leads and ridiculous theories, which they were then forced to follow up. One lead pointed to the discovery of a right foot and a portion of a lower leg which had been found over 30 miles to the east by Guildford train station. The remains were brought back to London and Dr Bond inspected them along with Dr Hebert, eventually concluding that they were not human at all and possibly from the carcass of a bear. The Illustrated Police News reported that three men had been seen outside the building site on the weekend the body had been dumped, looking shifty and cutting a parcel of some kind along with a barrow. The police managed to track the three men down, but it was quickly resolved and they were found to be completely unrelated. Robert Lees, a medium based in Peckham, offered his supernatural services to the police, showing up at Scotland Yard to help out, but was promptly turned away, just as he had been earlier in the week when he had tried to help police investigate the Ripper murders in Duffield Yard. And then, just as all was looking utterly hopeless, an embarrassing lead opened up on the case on the 17th of October when a journalist named Jasper Waring, working on the case for an unnamed paper, showed up at the building site with a small Russian terrier. He let the dog loose and chased it through the site until the dog discovered, buried in a shallow grave just yards from the location of the original torso, a woman's left leg and foot, covered in about four inches of loose dirt, in a location that the police had already searched over several times. That night, the pair returned once more alongside police officers who lit the site with candles and chased the dog until he uncovered a left arm. Both limbs were sent to the surgeons who, rather disturbingly, found that the limbs had been buried at the site before the body, meaning whoever had dumped the parts has visited the building site on at least two occasions. The inquest resumed a week later, with much of the evidence a simple retread of everything that had gone before, though Jasper Waring was there to give his own account of the discovery of the newly uncovered parts. Just as before, with little else they were able to do, the jury returned an open verdict of found dead, and the Whitehall mystery was chalked up as a loss and promptly forgotten, just as Jack the Ripper geared up to kill his final victim in the first week of November, creating such a scene of savage and grim brutality that it stole the show from anything else in the press for weeks. It would be another year before memories of both the Raynham and Whitehall mysteries would resurface, as another chapter would be unveiled in its macabre tale. By the summer of 1889, 
The terrifying scenes left behind by the Ripper had eventually fallen off into the distance, and life in the East End was just about returning to normal. Policing levels within Whitechapel had been lowered back to their normal rate, and the police were just about getting over the ridicule and scorn that had been poured over them from the press during the case's initial investigations. For a while, every murder in the city, especially if it had occurred in the East End of London, was linked as a potential Ripper case, prolonging the dread that had been cast over the city during the autumn of 1888. But eventually, as cases got more and more far afield, even as far as the United States, people did begin to move on. In 1889, Tower Bridge was still early on in its construction. It lay just on the eastern outskirts of the city of London, around a mile from the streets of Whitechapel, just near enough to the Ripper's playground to cause a special stir when the body of a woman was found floating in the Thames on the 4th of June by a labourer named John Reagan, who had caught a group of young boys tossing stones at a floating package and then hoisted it out of the water for himself, only to discover inside was a bloated, pale torso. Calling out to a patrol boat nearby, Reagan waved the police over to the find, who took the remains to the nearby Wapping police station. Meanwhile, just half a mile away, Isaac Brett, a young 15-year-old woodcutter from Chelsea, was taking a dip in the river near Battersea when he saw a parcel floating nearby tied with string. Hauling the package to the bank, an onlooker passing by suggested that he take the find to the police rather than open it for himself. The advice saved the young man some considerable trauma as when the police did open it, they uncovered a slab of meat which they identified as a woman's thigh, wrapped in what looked like the remains of an overcoat with a checkered pattern, along with the right leg of a pair of torn underwear stained with blood that, crucially, was complete with the name L.E. Fisher scrawled into the waistband in black ink. The following day, an inquest was organised to take place at the Vestry Hall in Wapping, overseen by the coroner, Mr. Wim Baxter, who had gained a certain amount of infamy by now after his role as the coroner who had overseen the inquests in three of the five Ripper murders. Dr. Thomas Bond returned to give his medical thoughts on the body part which he believed had come from the same body and had likely been tossed into the water at the same time, with the victim's death taking place less than 24 hours earlier. Unsurprisingly, the inquest was adjourned until July the 3rd in order to give the police time to follow up on their investigations, which, for once, were actually doing relatively well. Since the discovery of the body, the police have been carrying out various experiments, tossing items off the nearby Albert Bridge in order to ascertain whether or not the body parts could have flowed to their positions if, as Dr Bond had believed, they'd been tossed into the water at the same time. Meanwhile, much of the police's effort was going into the identification and tracking of L.E. Fisher, though work was disappointingly slow. And then, the very next day, more clues were tossed the investigation's way when a third parcel was recovered from a row of overgrown bushes on the outskirts of Battersea Park, right next to the river. Untying the cord that wrapped the parcel, inside, the police found the upper section of a woman's torso, wrapped in a burgundy skirt. Removed to Battersea Mortuary, the surgeons discovered that the body had been badly mutilated, with the rib cage sawn through, several ribs removed and missing, along with much of the upper chest cavity. Meanwhile, as the doctors were busy inspecting this torso, Barge builder Charles Marlowe was busy working at Coppington's Wharf in nearby Wapping when he spotted what appeared to be human remains floating on the surface of the water. He immediately reported his suspicions to a nearby police officer 
and soon enough, Inspector William Law had fished him out of the river from Waterloo Pier, just yards from where sections of the rain and body had been discovered two years earlier. In what was turning out to be a chain of events, David Keane, an engineer, spotted a collection of remains by Palace Wharf, further west down the Thames, by nearby Fulham, whilst the following day, Solomon Hearn, a gypsy used to fishing off the riverbank, discovered a human leg half buried in the mud of the shallows, just past Battersea Park, wrapped in the same chequered material as the first remains to be found. That same day, three more parcels of remains were found in the river between the West India Docks and Battersea Park, including a right leg, a foot and a left arm. The next two days proved to be equally as profitable for the investigation, when journalist Claude Meller, who had been assigned to write on the case, discovered a further collection of remains, discarded into the overgrown shrubbery of the Shelley estate, owned by the ancestors of the famous author Mary Shelley, who somewhat ironically had garnered fame through her novel about Dr Frankenstein's monster, which may have looked something like the macabre picture that the surgeons were working on back at the mortuary, as Dr Thomas Bond, Dr Hebert and Dr Kempster were all busy reassembling the gruesome remains of what appeared to be a young woman, with all the pieces fitting neatly back together into an almost entire human body, minus the head. The torso had been cut into three large chunks, with all limbs having been removed via careful disarticulation using a fine sharp knife. No injuries from sexual assault could be found, though it was clear that the woman had been pregnant at the time of the murder, with the fetus having been removed during the dissection. In terms of identification, the woman had an indentation on one of her left-hand fingers, which suggested that she may have been married, along with vaccination scars on her upper arm and a one-inch scar on her forearm. Overall, though, it was probably the collection of shredded and torn-up clothing that gave the police the best leads to go by, with more or less a full outfit, from underwear to overcoat accounted for. Interestingly, the surgeon's report suggested that the killer, whilst clearly having some skill at dissection, was not medically trained. The skill is not showing the anatomical knowledge of a surgeon, but rather the aptitude learnt by a butcher, horse-knacker or other person used to deal with dead animals and to readily separate limbs at the joints. The police, meanwhile, had been busy organising for all of the clothes to be put on public display, seeking an identification whilst they spent most of their manpower pouring through the missing persons reports and questioning the locals around the Battersea area, going door to door and offering a description of the victim whilst dog handlers combed the riverbanks looking for the missing head. When the inquest was finally resumed, Dr Bond suggested publicly for the first time that he thought that all of the Thames torso mysteries were linked to the same killer, with the coroner questioning whether or not the deaths could have been attributed to a rogue abortionist. With scant new evidence having been discovered, proceedings were once more adjourned until the 1st of July. Then, Just when the officials began to fear that once again the body would go down as another mystery, a woman came forward with a positive identification. Catherine Jackson came forward to the police after seeing the body on display in the Battersea mortuary and identified the victim as her daughter, Elizabeth Jackson. Born in 1865 in County Cork, Ireland, Elizabeth was 23 years old at the time of her death. She had been one of three daughters to Catherine, who had moved to Chelsea and worked in a domestic servant position before running off sometime in 1888 to live with a man named Charlie, who was something of a pimp to Elizabeth, who had begun working as a prostitute in the West End of London, before taking up a lodging house in Millwall with a 37-year-old miller named John Faircloth. 
This relationship hadn't lasted, however, and when John left, Elizabeth was left to fend for herself. At this point, several months pregnant. With the rent falling behind on payments, she ended up living on the streets, prostituting herself around Soho and mixing with the homeless community along the Thames Embankment. In the months before her murder, she had seen her mother in the street, and the two had had an argument, her family being rather upset that Elizabeth had taken to working on the streets. Once Catherine Jackson had made the identification of her daughter, several of Elizabeth's companions were tracked down, and all were able to identify the clothing as having unmistakably belonged to Elizabeth, and a picture of her life was built up that fully supported the identification, right down to the underwear with the name Ellie Fisher, which had been obtained by Elizabeth after they had passed through several hands, whilst they had been on a trip to Ipswich. All of these facts left the police convinced that they had finally got the names of a Thames torso victim. Asking around, they managed to trace her movements right up to the day of her death, and a witness was found who said they had seen Elizabeth on the 31st of May, just before her murder, walking with a man wearing a dark coat and a rough cap. Though as intriguing as this information was, Ultimately, the description was so vague as to be entirely useless. Naturally, the press leapt on the story, linking it with the Ripper murders, many suggesting the killer was making his return. Though in reality, the press knew it made for a good copy, and the stories mostly focused on the fact that Elizabeth had been a prostitute rather than any solid evidence. But that certainly wasn't going to stop any journalists from having their chance at reigniting the dramatic Autumn of Terror. That a woman has been brutally murdered and her body mutilated after the fashion adopted of the Whitechapel murderer is beyond dispute. That this woman was Elizabeth Jackson, a homeless unfortunate frequenting Chelsea and Battersea, where some of the remains of her body were found in the early part of this month, is highly probable. That the infamous Whitechapel murderer is at large, we know to our cost, and that he is still perpetrating his nameless horrors and brutal atrocities can hardly be questioned. He has baffled the police thus far, and his non-apprehension is a public calamity. Whether he will ever be brought to justice and expiate his guilt upon the scaffold are among the secrets which only the future can divulge. Sadly, for the police, the investigation was not moving very fast once the identification of the body had been made. Elizabeth Jackson's life had been traced right down to her final hours, but no fresh leads had ever really been materialised. With the press linking the murder to the Ripper, the police were once again falling under a harsh public scrutiny, and it was becoming increasingly clear that Elizabeth's murder would not fade away as quickly as the first two torsos had done before. Then, just as the case grew colder and the pressure on the police grew stronger, a fourth torso turned up, increasing the heat upon all of the officials involved. A circuit of Constable William Pennett's beat took him 30 minutes to complete. Just north of the Thames and through Whitechapel, he was one bobby happy that the Ripper's reign of terror had finally come to a close, though there were enough unsavoury characters about without a murderous phantom on the loose at the same time. Walking along Pynchon Street at 5.25am on the morning of 10th of September, the streets were still dim, with the sun just beginning to peak above the horizon. The dark railway arches that ran parallel to the street cast heavy shadows from their cavernous bellies. Passing by the arches, he turned to shine his bullseye lanterns into each unboarded arch, one by one, in order to check that they were empty. The light bounced off the uneven brick surface, down to the floor and across to the far arch, and then on to the next. Except on this occasion, something was there lying face down against the far wall that looked like the pale torso of a body shining in the dim yellow light. 
The arms were splayed beneath the body, and a torn chemise lay across the neck area, but it was clear that it had no head. As he approached the grim find, the scene only grew worse, and he rolled it over to see a huge gash, 15 inches long across the stomach, the bowels protruding out onto the street. Stepping back and composing himself for a moment, Pennant turned around and saw a street cleaner further down the road, and he called him over, ordering him to go and fetch reinforcements. Nervous, the minutes ticked by slowly, until eventually the officer gave in and blew his whistle. Thankfully, the effect was almost immediate, and shortly after, two more constables arrived on the scene, along with Inspector Pinhorn, who organised a search of the area. Right away, the police discovered two men sleeping in the arches, right where the body had been lying. It turned out that they had been drunks, who had been a little too far gone to make it home, and had decided to sleep rough. But, thanks to the alcohol, both had been out like a light, and neither seemed to know much of anything that had been happening around them, and they were both just as surprised as the police concerning the body, convinced that it had not been there when they had arrived to bed down for the night. Within an hour, the police surgeon, Dr Percy Clark, arrived on the scene to check over the body. Turning it over onto its back, he noted it was the body of a young woman and that despite its horrific wounds and dismemberment, there was no blood on the ground and a certain amount of decomposition had already begun, meaning the killer must have dumped it there after killing her elsewhere. Had this mystery murderer not seen the drunks asleep in the archway, or had he just been so confident that he just didn't care. Pennant confirmed that he had not seen the body on his earlier trip around the beat, meaning that he must have just missed the killer, who must have appeared just in time to dump it in the 30 minutes before he had come back round, sometime between 5 and 5.25am. As the searches continued all morning, little new evidence was discovered. Some bloody clothing was found nearby to the arches, but they turned out not to be linked with the murder. The inquest was organised for the following day, once more headed up by Wim Baxter. But with little to speak of, the day was kept relatively short, with the most interesting details discussed, that of how the body could have arrived at the scene. The floor beneath the archways was dusty, but no tracks that looked anything like a handcart or wheelbarrow had been discovered, and no witnesses had seen anyone walking through the area with a barrow in tow either. Following the scant details known, however, proceedings were adjourned until the 24th of September. Over the following days, extra police were dispatched to Whitechapel once more, and inquiries were made throughout the area, inquiring at all the local cabyards as to whether anyone had been seen early on in the morning of the discovery, especially if they'd been carrying a large parcel. But no leads were uncovered. Naturally, the press were all over the murder, especially given its location as it was on the border of St George's of the East and Whitechapel, and this obviously being in the proximity of the Ripper killings. Several papers were quick to link it with the Ripper, exclaiming, Once more the beast has slipped through the toils. The Daily Telegraph hit hardest with their scathing criticism of the police, calling it a national humiliation that a few ingenious miscreants had managed to elude the police of London for such a long time. One rather strong report ended with the line simply, The police have absolutely no clue. The police did have a clue, however though it really wasn't much of a clue at all. In fact, it had initially been treated as a hoax when a man named John Cleary had visited the offices of the New York Herald in London to report a murder that he had heard about from a police inspector friend as he had been on his way home from a pub in Whitechapel High Street. The supposed attack had taken place on the night of Saturday, September the 7th in Backchurch Lane, a small Whitechapel back street that intersected with Pynchon Street. He told all of this to the news desk who dispatched two journalists to check out the tip-off, but neither found anything 
and wrote the whole affair off as a hoax. Now, with the body found three days later, just yards from where Cleary had suggested, the story gained a new importance. The journalist alerted the police and Cleary was tracked down, but it turned out Cleary wasn't the informant at all. Whoever had given the information to the New York Herald had gone to the effort of giving both a fake name and address. Inquiries were made and eventually a newspaper seller named John Arnold caught wind of them and came forward, exposing himself as the informant, completely undermining his efforts to conceal his identity in the first place. During questioning, he told the police that he had left the King Ludd pub in Whitechapel and had been heading home when he had been approached by a man, around 35 years old, who was 5 foot 6 tall with a fair complexion and moustache. The man had been wearing a uniform of some kind that included a cheesecloth cap and a black tunic with shoulder cords and bright buttons and carried a parcel around 6 to 8 inches long. As the man drew near to him, he blurted out, Hurry up with your papers, another murder! Arnold, slightly shocked, asked the man where, to which he replied, in Backchurch Lane, before walking quickly away. These details were curious, but the description of the uniform was vague, and although police did put efforts into tracking down the mystery man, nothing solid came from the information. Back in the mortuary, Dr. Clark and Dr. Phillips, assisted by Dr. Gordon Brown, carried out their post-mortem on the discovered torso. Dr. Brown had previously assisted in the Catherine Eddowes Ripper murder a year earlier, and he now found himself presented with another body that many were conflating with the same killer. The doctors, however, had a different opinion. In their conclusions, they wrote that the woman had likely been killed 24 hours before being dumped under the arches. There were several bruises and marks on the backs of both hands and forearms, and whoever had carried out the dismemberment had used a sharp knife around 8 inches long. Though they had had some skill, they did not believe that the killer had been a medical man, and rather they aligned him with those familiar with the butchery of animals. In regards to whether or not the woman had been a victim of the Ripper, they believed that the killing showed no signs familiar to the Whitechapel murderer's usual methods, with the cuts being more calculated and careful as opposed to what they called the wanton savagery of Jack the Ripper. When the inquest resumed on the 24th, the reality that no identification had been made, nor was likely to be made, meant that an open verdict was the most likely outcome. This wasn't helped by the fact that a solid cause of death had not been found. There were no traces of poison, no wounds outside of those made after death, and a few bruises on the arms and back, and no internal injuries, though it was noted that the victim's liver had been diseased. In all likelihood, the doctors believed that she had probably had her throat cut, but without the head, it was just simply impossible to tell. A verdict of willful murder against some person or persons unknown was given, and the proceedings called to a close. The unidentified body was buried, with no legs nor head, on the 5th of October, in a grave marked number 16185. And with its burial, so too concluded the Torso Mysteries, the police uncovering almost nothing from the crimes. The case of the Thames Torso murders is a confusing mystery with almost no hope of ever being solved. Despite its similarities to Jack the Ripper in time, place and brutality, it's never been more than a passing interest to most Victorian enthusiasts, and even then, usually in reference to Jack the Ripper himself. Was it simply that there were too many open ends, no real leads and no real potential for solving the crimes that it often got passed over so easily? Was the killer really a surgeon, as many of the reports seem to believe, or was he more likely a butcher or knacker, like the doctors were keen to impress during the inquests, 
possibly hoping to distance their profession from the brutal killings, or even rally around their fellow doctors. Were all the murders even carried out by the same killer at all? And of course, the number one question that tends to come up with the case, was that killer Jack the Ripper? Since the case has so many crossovers, naturally many of the popular Ripper suspects can be applied to the Torso murders, if only due to their movements through London and their apparent violent tendencies and lack of sanity. One of the key differences between the murders carried out by the Ripper and the Torso killer, however, was the fact that all of the Torso bodies were found once they had already been killed, cut up and packaged, transported away from a crime scene that would have been quiet, secure and out of the public eye. All of this was done in order to allow the murderer to carry out his meticulous dismemberment. In contrast, the Ripper's crimes were all quick, brutal affairs carried out on the streets of Whitechapel where he risked being caught at any moment. One was cold, calculated and unemotional, the other opportunistic, heated and wild. When viewed in this light, it makes any links difficult to establish, though the papers of the day did their best to try. There were rumours flying around after the murder of Elizabeth Jackson that several journalists had been given information that led them to believe the murders were linked to the Ripper, though they apparently held this information back on police orders. Various circumstances connected with the fate of Elizabeth Jackson led to the belief that she was really a victim of the Whitechapel fiend, Jack the Ripper. Weeks ago, we were in possession of information respecting a nameless indignity inflicted upon the victim's corpse, which was then considered advisable to suppress in the published reports. That indignity was of a character instinctively to suggest the handiwork of that most monstrous of murderers. Whether or not these rumours had any grain of truth to them whatsoever is another question entirely. It seems just as likely, given the lack of any solid details, that the papers were simply keen to stir up a sensation wherever they could, especially one which they already knew to be so profitable. R. Michael Gordon, who wrote a book about the Torso murders, published in 2002, does believe that the killer was Jack the Ripper. He linked a suspect known as Severin Koslovsky to both sets of murders, though he unfortunately relies upon false information and circumstantial evidence to get to this conclusion. In both sets of murders, both Jack the Ripper and the Thames Torso murderer have been linked with the medical profession, though in both cases it seems an unlikely event. In the case of the Thames Torso murderer, a butcher with a space to slaughter and butcher animals seems like a good starting point for suspects. Marion Tro, who wrote a book on the murders, puts forth his theory that the killer was what was known in Victorian London as a cat's meat man a portable butcher who hawked their wares on the streets from a handcart they pulled around behind them or via a pony and trap, so named for the horse meat that they would sell for pet food and cast off to the strays as they went. Able to blend in with the late night and early morning traders, moving freely without suspicion and likely known and trusted to the locals, if the killer was such a trader, he would have found his passage to dispose of the bodies a relatively simple, undisturbed affair. Using geographical location techniques, Tro even puts forward a workplace used for the crimes, the Harrison and Barber Slaughterhouse on Garrison Lane, one of the largest slaughterhouses in London, half a mile from the river, south of Battersea. But at the end of the day, all of this is little more than conjecture. With a case so ambiguous and so far in the past, it seems almost impossible to solve anymore. Unlike Jack the Ripper, there is a considerable drought in terms of research and suspects. But deep down, it's just as curious a mystery, if not even more so. Who was the killer and why did he kill? 
Who were the victims and how did their lives unfold? Was it even a true series of murders or were people just looking for such things after the Ripper's brief but deadly activities in the autumn of 1888? With no characters to fill in all of these numerous blanks, the Thames Torso Murders becomes a black hole of information that far outstrips the Ripper for mystery, despite living in its shadow since the discovery of the very first victim. So that was the story of the Thames Torso Murders, and we shall talk a little bit about that. Well, yeah, we'll try to keep it fairly short because it's quite a long episode anyway, but we'll talk a bit about that after these short advert breaks. Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you ever feel like your brain is getting in its own way? Like you know what you should do, what's good for you, but you just can't do it. Therapy helps you figure out what's holding you back so you can work for yourself instead of against yourself. If that resonates with you in any way or anything like that, then perhaps you might find the broader benefits of therapy helpful. For example, learning positive coping skills, how to set boundaries, empowering you to be the best version of yourself. You know, therapy isn't just for people who've experienced major trauma or, you know, who feel like they have uh, any major sort of uh, problems in their lives. It can really be for anybody and, and just talking to someone and talking through uh, like these blockages in your life like really can just help you out in a, in a big way. So if you ever thought about starting therapy or you're thinking now about perhaps starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, which is really convenient. And it's totally what it's designed for. It's completely flexible and it suits your schedule. I did it. I did it on a Monday morning, sat in my pyjamas. It was brilliant. Uh, you, all you got to do is you fill out a brief questionnaire. You get matched with a licensed therapist, uh, which... If you don't like that therapist, you can switch them at any time for no additional charge. The therapist that was allotted to me was great, so I never had to do that. But the options there, if you ever do, you know, when I did it, I felt like it, it just took down some of those barriers, that some of those sort of mental barriers that stopped me from going into therapies. So, so, so yeah, so I, I felt it was a really beneficial experience when I did it. So why not make your brain your friend with BetterHelp? Visit betterhelp.com slash dark histories today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash dark histories. Forbidden history, grisly ghosts, monstrous cryptids, and harrowing folklore dominate Japan's history and culture. Mysterious Japan is a bi-weekly podcast presenting these spine-chilling horror stories, urban legends, and unbelievable histories in a campfire story format. Many of these tales have never been presented in English before. Our journey takes place where dark history and supernatural folklore collide. Mysterious Japan is produced, written, and translated by recognized Japan expert Dr. Heath Havey. Season 1 relates the unbelievable legends and ghost stories from the so-called suicide forest. Listen to Mysterious Japan for free on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at our website at themysteriousjapan.com and be transported by unbelievable stories where the lines between reality and folklore become blurred in the shadowlands of Japan. Once again, that's themysteriousjapan.com. So yeah, it's quite a story. It's Like I say, this is one I've had in my mind since um, episode one. Uh, it, it was... Uh, if I remember reading about it years and years and years ago when I read Paul Begg's A to Z of Jack the Ripper, I think it is, um, which is pretty much one of the sort of definitive Jack the Ripper books. And I remember reading about it in there and um, it always just sort of like played in my mind as, as a just as interesting story because obviously 
in that book it was written of I don't I don't think Paul Beggard actually linked the two murders but I think he he was putting forward the idea that these murders are sometimes linked and it always interested me because I, I didn't feel they were linked when I first read about it I, I felt like they were just too different and I think I pretty much still stand by that so obviously getting back into it now and doing it for this episode I, I found out a lot more but it, but something that is really interesting just between Jack the Ripper and this the sheer just like level of research done on the Ripper case is insane I mean you can find out almost anything about Jack the Ripper you can find out like the, the complete there's I know that there's books been published that literally just list all the police officers and their shifts and where they were working at what time and what day it's just so you like Jack the Ripper really has been looked into to down to the minutiae whereas this is the complete opposite and this has had almost nothing done to it almost no work um but that makes it really interesting but obviously it obviously does leave a vacuum of information there, there are no real characters to sort of create a a mystique like Jack the Ripper and I guess that's kind of why it's always lived in the shadow of of the Ripper anyway I find it still just as interesting if not more so um you know where do you start with it uh, firstly the details of the crimes themselves are, are quite difficult to pick apart because if you'll find out if you do start looking into this you'll discover quite quickly that there were a lot of limbs being discovered around London and several of the stories uh, bungle the like limbs together all mixed up from different stories because so, either so many limbs were being found or they were just being mistakenly um, written about there was a lot of panic at the time especially once you got to 88 and stories were realistically being made up by a lot of journalists um, things get very mucky about how how many of these um, limbs were actually found so actually like piecing that together by itself is a, is a difficult enough job and and that, that must have been the case on the day as well because uh, you know a, a good example of this is that Elizabeth Jackson being the only one the four bodies to have been uh, identified she actually had two different inquests and two different death certificates due to bits of her being found in two different uh, constabularies or, or divisions because back then the police um, uh, was uh, the, 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 the police across London were divided um, firstly by two different types of police and then and then all the units were divisional so um, you know it, it things fell out of people's jurisdiction. And and so, yeah, she ended up with two inquests and two death certificates. So that just goes to show like how mucky this gets, how quickly. But despite the fact that all these limbs were being found and stuff and people thought they might be impractical jokes from dissection and things like that, and the fact that you know, bodies turned up relatively often in the Thames, this was still an unusual bunch of murders that I think they do lend themselves to being an actual series. I do think they were linked. I think... There's just one too many coincidences that link them all. Um, and, I, and I do definitely think they were a, a series of murders because that is a, a genuine debate and a, you know, a worthwhile debate. A lot of people think that these weren't even a series of murders. They think that they're just separate murders by separate people um, and it's just a coincidence. But I don't think that's the case. I think too many of them were found around Battersea Park area um, to have been a coincidence. Um, although... You know, it could have been the flow of the river that, that just ended up taking them there. But there were 
parts that were found on the, um, you know, in, in the Battersea Park, uh, the hedges of the Mary Shelley's um, ancestors' house, for example, and in the uh, bushes of the park as well. So uh, I do think that it possibly was um, a series of murders. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty convinced on that. Another sort of theory that is sort of pushed out there a little, but mostly left aside, and, and I would say for good reason, is that there, for a while there's theories that, there, that the killer was an, an abortionist, like an illegal abortionist um, who was killing women that he'd botched their abortions. That definitely happened, um, as I mentioned in a kind of introduction with that woman who got killed. It turns out she wasn't even pregnant. So, yeah, it, it definitely happened, but not usually to homeless prostitutes that much because the thing is the homeless prostitutes d- didn't have the means to uh, work with these abortionists who tended to want money usually the people who went to see these abortionists were either maids of well-off families who uh, their maid had obviously been made pregnant usually by the master of the house or, or whatever and they needed to sort of cover that up um, or um, well-off women who you know being pregnant and not being married would maybe affect the reputation or something like that or seem to affect the reputation. So these were the types of people, I mean, I'm not saying it's exclusively that, but these were the types of people you commonly saw getting uh, dodgy abortions. Less so, say, like uh, prostitutes. Mainly, they were just left to their own devices. Um, There's not really much of a support network for these poor classes of the East End um, or, you know, the, the prostitutes of London at the time. And, and that's you know largely um, what uh, what's credited to the the Ripper as a, as a good thing is that the murders did bring a lot of attention to that fact, and uh, you know there was a lot of reform in the East End uh, after the, the killings. But anyway, we're getting a little off topic. But you know, since we're talking about the Ripper, do I think he was the Ripper? Um, no, uh, it's been linked with the Ripper murders for a long time, and I think there, it is quite a divisive one. You get some people who think that it, it definitely was. You get some people who think it definitely wasn't. Rarely in this one, it's interesting, you get people who say, not sure. People seem to be quite um, like one or the other. There's, there's not much fence sitting here. I, I, I definitely think it wasn't. I think they, they were just too different. Like I mentioned, like like Jack the Ripper was too savage and everything was in the heat, like of, uh, crimes of passion. You know, he was like ripping them apart. Even uh, Mary Kelly, who he had a long time with because it was indoors in her apartment, it was still showed signs of that kind of savage butchery, whereas these killings seem too careful, too cautious. Um, I'm not going to say they... Say, I did sort of mention in the thing that they were kind of cold and, uh, like, lacked, were sort of cold and unemotional, but uh, it's a useful way of contrasting it against the Ripper, but of course we don't know if it was emotional or crime of passion or not because we didn't have it because we didn't have any of the heads, didn't really see how they died, although it seems probably likely he cut their throats and that's why he disposed of their heads. But yeah, I, I don't think it was uh, anything to do with the Ripper. The, the one that gets closest is actually, funnily enough, the last body um, that was found quite close to Whitechapel, but really on the border between Whitechapel and St George's of the East, and still a little far out for Jack the Ripper's sort of usual stomping ground. But it, she did have her stomach hacked open, which is kind of close to some of the other things that Jack the Ripper done. So that one, I, I think, you know, that one sort of teases you into it. Um, but, but I think, no, I think he probably wasn't uh, Jack the Ripper. 
obviously in both cases, again, it's kind of helped by the fact that uh, there's that misunderstanding like that the, the, the Jack the Ripper was a, a skilled doctor or surgeon or whatever because of um, what was said in a, a couple of inquests. That's, I think, largely um, people nowadays sort of recognise that as misinformation largely and that that really wasn't what they were saying. The, no one really ever said that they think that he was a doctor. You know, so it's become kind of part of the myth of Jack the Ripper that he walked around with like this doctor's coat and top hat and a doctor's bag and that. But I think those things came later with things like Hitchcock's The Lodger and things like that. Um, you know, that they, they, they kind of, you know, that when they, that they, you know, when things became dramatised, that was a nice trope. But it, it's, it, I don't think it had any basis in reality. So, yeah, I don't think either were um, doctors. And I, and I don't think this case was related to the Ripper. Um, I think it's fair to say that probably he was like a, a butcher or a slaughterer or something like that um but i i don't know tro tro the marion tro who wrote the book I, I don't really like his theory of it being um that slaughterhouse um south of battersea because although okay it was about half a mile south of battersea um it's kind of miles away from everywhere it say so it, it was only really close to battersea but outside of that it was a long way and I feel like he's stretching a lot there, but but I mean, fair enough. I have a crack, you know, because there's we don't we know nothing else about it, you know. So why not have a go? I guess um, you know, I, I I'll give it my own go um, of sort of wild speculation, which is you know exactly all all he's doing, which is fair enough. Um, I would say that there are only two witnesses um, that mentioned anyone that might remotely know anything about the cases. There was, so there was the, the newspaper seller who said that he saw a man walking down Whitechapel High Street who came up to him and said that there's been a murder over there. Um, and he said that he was wearing a uniform um, and a dark hat. Uh, in the uh, Elizabeth Jackson murder, one of the uh, her acquaintances said that she had been seen on the night of her murder with a man with a dark cap. That's about all we know. That's that, but, but, And that's all we're given. It's really vague, but... If we look at both of those descriptions, they both are men wearing caps. Difficult because essentially that probably describes 90% plus of people in London at the time or men in London at the time because, you know, hats were a big thing. Um, but caps makes you think maybe both men were wearing that uniform, right? So if we look at a man in uniform, say we're looking for a man in uniform, that is an interesting starting point. It doesn't really make things any easier because it really only narrows it down to the police, a dock worker, a railway worker, maybe even someone who comes from the boats. It, it, we're left with quite a, a, a huge scope of people there. So that's about as far as I'm willing to speculate on who might have been the murderer. Someone wearing a uniform, <laughs> which is obviously pointless. <laughs> But but that's where we are with this case, really. You know, that's where we're left. Um, I guess you could start cross-referencing that with some of the research done into all the Ripper suspects because there's a lot of them, uh, you know, a lot of violent uh, criminals that were taken off the street and put in asylums and stuff. You could start cross-referencing that with that. Did any of them have backgrounds in a uh, position that may have needed to wear a uniform? Why not have a look? Uh, that would probably be where I would start. Um, anyway... 
that's about that for this story. There were other bodies actually. Um, there's a that I've covered the con- like canonical four um, in this uh, episode because um, it was quite long. But there were a, f- a series of like two or three other bodies that came up. So quite a few years before, 1873, 74, and 1884, I think. Um, and they tend to also get linked to these. Uh, some of them, yes. Some of them, no. Uh, I feel like they're not all linked. Um, but they, they all sort of sh- tend to get mentioned alongside. Um, so if you do want to um, look into this more, there's definitely more for you to look into if you wanted to. Um, this is definitely a... A precursor you know an introduction to the case um but the thing is is not many people have looked into this so it's it's an it's an exciting case if you do want to look into it because whereas the ripper most stuff you want to look into it's all been done before it's all been trod over before and it's also quite a toxic community and it's not worth really getting involved in this is quite different this is a case that not many people have really looked into but being that it crosses over with the ripper so well there's a lot of that research that's been done for the Ripper that you can apply to this one as well. So it's it's, it's quite an interesting case in that sense. So yeah, if you want to check it out, um, definitely get started with a couple of books that I mentioned by, written by um, Marion Trowell. And, I, and I'd certainly have a look at um, the uh, all of the um, medical, uh, all of the medical reports um, from Heber and Bond are available as well. So definitely worth digging into them as, as a good starting place. Anyway, if you'd like to contact me about this or any other reason, or if you'd like to do your Christmas campfire submission, you can contact me, uh, contact at darkhistories.com. Otherwise, I, I am on social media and you can contact me there anywhere. All the links to that is in the show notes uh, of the episode. Uh, it's also on the website darkhistories.com, which is where you'll find just about anything that uh, you need to find for the show, really, including ways that you can support if you would like to. Uh, I've got a patron if you would like to sign up to that. That'd be great. It's obviously uh, gives me f- uh, security to know that the sh- show can keep on as it, it currently is. Um, but yeah, otherwise, the, you know, there's plenty of ways that don't require a uh, financial investment to, 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 to support. If you want to uh, give a review, that'd be great. Um, or, you know, if you just wanted to share it with your friends or share it online, that, that, that all really helps. Anyway. Thanks very much for listening. Uh, So I'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode. Until then, I hope you enjoyed it. I say thanks very much for uh, listening and, you know, being here with me today. It's always a a great pleasure. So until then, take care. Sleep tight.